0: I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12, looking this morning at verses 49 through 59. If you haven't brought a Bible with you, there are pew Bibles in the pew racks in front of you, and our passage is found on page 872 872 in those pew Bibles. I have been doing over the course of three years during the Christmas season, the Advent season, a a sermon series on why Christ came to earth, and uh, this is the last one, so the end of uh, three years of doing this during uh, Christmas season, and this is the absolute last one because, frankly, I can't find any more scripture passages. I think I've... I think I've pretty much exhausted all of them. Uh, And so we come to this last one, which in many ways may strike us as the most troubling of the passages that we have looked at. So let's look together. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. Jesus is speaking. I came to cast fire... On the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth, of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And thus far, God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word May he write its truth on our hearts this morning. Let's go to him in prayer. Our God, how we thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have newness of life, in whom we have salvation. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that he also came to cast fire on the earth. We pray that you, this day, by your Holy Spirit, O God, will illumine us and teach us from this text. We ask for your grace and for your mercies today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At Christmas season, we're used to hearing the expression, peace on earth. Peace on earth. uh, We often hear especially in the the old King James, peace on earth, goodwill to men, or as the ESV translates, peace on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. But here in verse 51, Jesus is fairly clear when he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division not peace, Jesus says, but I have come to bring division. Just as striking is what he says in verse 49, where he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I want us to reflect on this image, especially for a little bit as we begin Here, verse 49, he came to cast fire on earth. Let's reflect on this image of fire. What does fire indicate? What does it symbolize? Well, if you were like us in our household a little over a week ago, you probably had a time on a very cold day when you were without power. In fact, at our house, a week ago Friday and a week ago Saturday, two days in a row, we were without power for several hours. Uh, one because of strong winds, the next day because of uh, selective uh, power outages by the, the power company to preserve power for the, the region. That's all well and good. But I kept looking at the thermostat in our house, and we got down to 50 degrees. But we did have a fireplace that we could gather around uh, when we wanted to stay warm. Fire, of course, keeps us uh, warm. Fire also, in Scripture and, in other, and, and, and elsewhere, purifies. Uh, we see that fairly clearly in several places. But if you, like me, like to listen to Handel's Messiah during the Christmas season... You're familiar with the, the uh, song, he is like a refiner's fire, one who refines, one who purifies, in other words, right out of Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 2. But fire, of course, also destroys. Fire destroys, and it is often used this way. In fact, it is the primary way that fire is used in Scripture. It is used as an image for God's judgment. And that, I think, is the way Jesus primarily is using it here. In fact, it fits the larger context of the Gospel of Luke. You can turn back with me or just listen as I turn back to Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is John the Baptist speaking, but he's speaking about the the one who is coming, that is Jesus himself. And John says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire the fire of god's judgment we see the same image in a similar image in hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 It says we are to come to God in worship with reverence and awe for our God. It says there is a consuming fire. and So here we have Jesus. He says he has come to cast fire on the earth. He has come for judgment. For judgment, first and foremost. In fact, the larger context seems to confirm this idea. If you look back, I'm not going to read it. If you look back at the immediately preceding passage in verses 45 to 47, you see judgment there. Right before Jesus enters into this image here of casting fire on the earth, the judgment on the unfaithful servant. He comes to cast fire. But notice something else. Notice here in verse 49, his tone of distress. Would that it were already kindled. Would that it were already kindled. We see a similar idea in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Would that it were kindled, how great is my distress, until it is accomplished. These two things are tied together. Later in in Romans, Paul is going to say when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. Those ideas are, are tied together. The baptism of Jesus here most likely points to his death. And we have a similar idea in verse 49. The fire that Jesus comes to bring, to cast on the earth, is the fire that's going to consume himself. The fire, first and foremost, that Jesus himself is going to bear. And he's in distress He wishes it has already been kindled. In fact, he he uses an interesting word here at the end of verse 50. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. It is the same Greek word that we see Jesus use in John's gospel. In John, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit. He uses it. At his death. Christ came for judgment. And he's distressed by it. Why? Because he will endure it. He will endure it. Now why is he so distressed? Why is he so distressed? Many throughout history have died bravely. Soldiers in battle, others defending the lives of, of other people, they have died bravely. Why is Jesus so distressed? Well, it's because his death is so unique. What Jesus bears at his death is the very wrath of God. He endures the wrath. Of God pouring out of God's wrath what we sinners deserve for our sins. Christ endures it. We see this idea, for instance, in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we see this that he's sweating. Uh, his sweat is like drops of blood, and he prays to the Father, Father. If possible, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. What is that cup? That cup often used in Scripture for the cup of God's wrath that is poured out on sinners. And Jesus is about to drink that cup of God's wrath. A glorious picture of what the Savior has done. Come, coming, casting fire on the earth. Will Metzger, in his book, Tell the Truth, tells the story, the following story. A prairie prairie fire, he writes, was whipped along by wind so fast that it overtook all creatures in its path. One family, seeing the impossibility of outrunning the blaze, began a backfire and then covered themselves with earth as they lay in the midst of an already burned-out circle. The roaring fire met the backfire, and it burned only up to the edge of that burned-over area, then went right around it, continuing its hungry race. That family was saved. They knew the only safe place was where the fire Had already burned. And Will Metzger goes on to write this The fire of God's wrath has touched down at one particular point in history. And when it did, it utterly consumed a man as he hung on a cross. It did not burn a large area, but it finalized God's work of judgment. The fire of God's wrath will come again in history. This time it will consume the whole earth. Will there be any place to hide? Only on the hill where that cross stood, where the fire has already burned. A person is forgiven if he identifies with Christ, who on the cross bore God's judgment for sin. Jesus Christ is our burned-over area, the only safe hiding place. The call here is to go and find our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. But fire also purifies. It's like a refiner's fire. What happens when we come into communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is a a change, a transformation, a, a new life. The old life is changed. This includes behavioral changes, not overnight. Sometimes we still battle throughout life with besetting sins, but there is a change that comes about, a love for the Lord, a love for others, a love for brothers and sisters in Christ, a sanctifying process that begins to take place. But Jesus also points out here that there is another change that takes place, and this is a relational change. Relational changes we see in verses 51 to 53. Jesus says in verse 51, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Division within the family, not peace, but division. Now, of course, Jesus did, in one sense, come to bring peace. We read on at least two occasions during the Advent season that Jesus, from Isaiah chapter 9, is called the Prince of Peace. We also saw earlier on he came to bring peace among those with whom God is pleased. He brings peace and reconciliation with God himself. He makes us one and reconciled with with other believers. He brings true and lasting inner peace for those who know that their sins are forgiven, that they do not stand before God's judgment. And yet it brings division in relationships. And sometimes that division happens within the closest families. Notice the language he uses here at the beginning of verse 52. From now on, from now on, because of me, because I have come, for those who trust in me, for those who follow me, from now on, this is what is going to happen. Christ brings a radical change, and that affects our relationships. When we turn to Christ, for many of us, there will be rejection. Rejection by family, friends. When we seek to make Christ known, we will not be praised in the world. We will not get accolades in the world. In fact, we might try to be silenced in the world around us. Spirituality is popular today. We constantly hear of these stars who are into this and that new spirituality or old spirituality but no one wants to hear that Christ is the only way to God. As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but by me. It requires that Christ, that we recognize Christ as God. Why? Because we need God to save us. We cannot save ourselves, Christ as God. We need to be able to recognize our sin and that we need a Savior for our sin. People don't want to do that today. That's not popular to talk about sin and our need for a Savior. Neither is the idea that salvation is in Christ alone. Every couple of years, Ligonier Ministries does polls, and the most recent one, it's interesting how, how things we would love to see increase or decreasing, and the things we want to decrease are increasing in those polls of uh, Americans in general, and even Christians, uh, professing Christians in particular, and the most recent one, over half of professing Christians said that there are many ways to God. Over half. Many ways to God. Again, we need God to save us because we cannot save ourselves. It's not popular. Christ is not popular. Following Christ is not popular and it will lead to division and it will lead to rejection. But you know, this is part of what Jesus calls his followers to do, to take up their cross and to follow him. Taking up our cross means breaking, oftentimes, with what is most valuable to us. Because what? Taking up our cross means we take up our cross to go to our death just like Christ carried his cross to his death. We break with what is of most value to us in this world. But the problem, of course, in division is not necessarily Christ or even the gospel itself. J.C. Ryle, uh, over 100 years ago, Wrote this. He said, Let us never be moved by those who charge the gospel with being the cause of strife and division upon earth. It is not the gospel which is to blame, but the corrupt heart of man. So long as some men and women will not repent and believe, and some will, there must needs be division. To be surprised at this is the height of folly. The very existence of division is one proof of Christ's foresight and of the truth of Christianity. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is the corrupt human heart that brings about division. Finally, Jesus ends with two illustrations. First of all, in verses 54 through 56, and then in verses 57 through 59, he refers to uh, the, the says to the crowds. Notice here, he addresses the crowds with this, and he calls them to to properly interpret the times. And he says in verse 54, when you see a a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a, a shower is coming, and and so it happens. Why Why would that be in, in first century Israel, first century uh, uh, Palestine? It's because the west is where the Mediterranean Sea is. And so a cloud coming from the west, from the Mediterranean, would bring with it moisture. When it would get to the hills of Judea, it would turn into rain. And the rain clouds, the rain would, would calm, and so they would know it was, it was going to rain. They didn't need the weather channel. They had this. And then he says in verse 55, when you see a south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. Well, what happens? What is to the south, the south wind? It is desert. And so the wind blows from the south, and the, the dry, hot wind from the desert comes. And he says in verse 56, Jesus says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You don't know how to interpret the present time. They are failing to understand what Jesus is doing in their midst. He's there, his presence, his teaching, his miracles, everything about him, but they do not understand it. And today we can see what, what Jesus is doing. His kingdom is expanding. All over the world, Jesus' kingdom is, is expanding. We're seeing the fruit of, of, of the kingdom, even in places that are trying to, to stifle it. But what are we also seeing? We're seeing human solutions fail. One after another, human solutions to, to our major problems are, are failing. Getting more stuff appropriate perhaps Christmas time. Getting more stuff never satisfies. Scripture says, all have sinned, and all deserve the wrath of God. So he ends in verses 57 to 59 with one final illustration, to settle with an accuser, settle now in a in a financial dispute, someone who owes money to another. Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right, he said, and And you go as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer. And the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Here we have a a financial dispute. One owes money to another. And Jesus says, settle now. The officer that's referred to twice in this passage near the end would be the the financial officer. But he's also the one who is in charge of the debtor's prison. And often people put in the debtor's prison were, were beaten as an incentive for their families to pay up for them. And oftentimes, especially in the first century, those who went to Debtors' prison had little possibility of actually getting out. In verse 59, interesting here, the, just as a little bit of an extra here, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The word here for penny is actually the amount of money that an average worker would make for working 25 minutes. Smallest size of coin. 25 minutes of work. The point here is we owe a debt to God. A debt that we can never repay. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And that death is not just physical. It is spiritual. It is eternal separation from. From God eternal punishment. What Jesus is saying is settle before that day. And the good news is the debt has already been paid for those who will receive it. The debt has already been paid. Christ has paid the debt. He has paid it in full. In fact, that is a possible understanding, a possible translation of that same word that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, could potentially be translated paid in full. In fact, that was written on certain debts or certain bills paid in full. Settle before that day. How do we do that? by taking refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for his people. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you that you are indeed a God of great grace and mercy and love. And yet, oh God, you are a a holy God. You are a God who demands righteousness. And how we praise you That you, O God, in your grace, sent your beloved Son, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, to be our righteousness. And more than that, to take your judgment, your punishment on himself. That we might know you. And that we might have salvation. That we might live in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give you praise and we give you thanks. Prepare our hearts now as we prepare to come to this table to remember what Christ has done. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ paid in full for our sins and for our salvation. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.